Due to the nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abduction and human trafficking. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. Today's case is open and active. If you have information that can help, resources can be found at the end of this episode. Imagine you're at a used bookstore. You find an old paperback Agatha Christie novel on a shelf somewhere and decide to buy it. Then when you get home, you realize someone has torn out a bunch of pages, including the final chapter. You try to read it anyway. There's enough there to get a good sense of the plot and major themes. You meet most of the characters, but there are still gaps in the story. And without the ending, you can't quite work out how all the narrative threads are supposed to come together. That's how today's case feels. We have enough evidence to guess what might have happened, but we're missing the pieces that would make everything make sense. That could tell us whether we should be looking for a kidnapper, a killer, or a co-conspirator. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a young woman who disappeared from the Atlanta suburbs in 2017. The evidence suggests she wasn't alone, but we still don't know if she left on purpose or if she was abducted. Her name is Jenna Van Gelderen. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This case had me thinking a lot about how I relate to the world and how we all adapt to different spaces. Like how I act on social media is different from how I act at home alone or when I'm out to dinner with colleagues. We all do it to some extent. What we tell our close friends is different from what we share with our parents or our neighbors or our therapists. At the end of the day, no one knows what's actually going on in our heads, no matter how much they think they might. Everyone's inner lives are their own. Keep that in mind as you listen. People have drawn wildly different conclusions about this case based on their personal perceptions of Jenna. But before we get into what those are, let's start with the facts. The pages of Jenna's story we have access to. 
Jenna grows up just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, in a suburb called Druid Hills. Her mother and father, Leon and Roseanne, say she's someone who's always trying to make friends, but sometimes struggles with connecting to others. They describe her as sweet and funny, organized and independent. Jenna's diagnosed with autism late in life while she's in her early 20s. A few months later, she moves out of her parents' house and rents an apartment with a male friend. We don't know his name or how he and Jenna know each other. The information isn't publicly available, but she's 25 years old at the time and working at a pet supply store to support herself. But around the time she moves in the spring of 2017, she's accused of stealing roughly $3,000 from the store. She's fired and later convicted of a misdemeanor. According to her parents, it's just not like Jenna. They don't know her to steal. She's never had a criminal charge before. They believe that if she did take the money, she must have been influenced by someone else. Without naming anyone in particular, they claim Jenna was manipulated by, quote, certain men. Leon and Roseanne ask Jenna to house sit for them in August 2017 and take care of their elderly cat, Jesse, while they go on vacation to Canada. Jenna adores Jesse. The cat's 21 years old and has been around since Jenna was a toddler. Jesse needs periodic medical treatments, but Jenna's parents trust her to stay on top of everything while they're gone. Leon and Roseanne leave for Canada on August 15th. Four nights later, on the evening of the 18th, Jenna's still house-sitting. According to her cell records, Jenna goes out with a friend around 10.30 that night. She also sees her boyfriend at some point. The boyfriend's name hasn't been made public. As far as I can tell, he hasn't made any statements to the press about Jenna's disappearance. Everything I know about him comes from Jenna's dad, Leon, who gave an interview in 2017, where he shared some details that he says the police gave him. This means everything I know about Jenna's boyfriend is third-hand, from Leon, who spoke to the police, who spoke to the boyfriend. If we can trust that the information is accurate, the boyfriend supposedly broke up with Jenna that evening. I don't know much else about the night, except that Jenna returns to her parents' place sometime after 1 a.m. In the morning, a friend of Jenna's parents, who works as a veterinary nurse, drops by. When they knock on the door, Jenna doesn't answer. They look around for Jenna's car, but it's not parked anywhere nearby. So they call Jenna's brother, Will, who tries to get in touch with Jenna, but she doesn't pick up the phone. So Will decides to drop by the house himself to let the vet tech in. The door is locked, but the lights and television are on inside. Jenna's not home. Her purse and car are gone. So Will figures she might be out running errands or meeting a friend. But then he realizes all of her suitcases are gone too, and the cat hasn't been fed. Concerned, Will calls his parents to fill them in. Leon and Roseanne make plans to fly home from Canada as soon as possible. Before heading back, they call all of Jenna's friends, or at least the ones they know about. I'm assuming they're not familiar with whoever she went out with the night before, because everyone they talk to says they haven't heard from Jenna in at least 48 hours. The family reports Jenna missing before the end of the day. They've had a chance to go through the house more thoroughly, and there are some details they just can't explain. For example, some of Jenna's personal items are missing, but not all of them. 
Her car, purse, phone, and suitcases have all vanished. But Jenna left behind her phone charger, tennis shoes, and makeup bag. According to Leon and Roseanne, she wouldn't go anywhere without those items, especially the charger and makeup bag. And she wouldn't have left Jesse without arranging a new caretaker. Plus, one of their belongings is missing, an Egyptian tapestry. Jenna's grandfather brought it back in the 1940s. It has a hand-stitched scene of people standing in a field of reeds on it, the sort of artwork you'd see on the walls of a pyramid. The family heirloom used to be on display in a frame in Leon and Roseanne's living room. The frame is still there, but the tapestry's gone. Now, this is strange for a few different reasons. First, the tapestry is huge, roughly five feet long and two feet tall. The family says you'd need at least two people to move it. Second, it wasn't removed from the back of the frame. Someone took it down, cut the glass, pulled the tapestry out through the front, and then put the frame back on the wall. And third, if this was a robbery, the thief didn't take anything else of monetary value. All that's gone is the tapestry. Leon and Roseanne pass all this information on to the police. And officers look for Jenna in the next most obvious place, her apartment. Only when they get there, even more questions arise. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When officers search Jenna Van Gelderen's apartment, they notice that she doesn't have a bed or a mattress in her room. Her roommate claims she sleeps on the floor without a blanket or pillows. Now, Jenna's parents insist this isn't like her, but if there's anything to be learned from the lack of bedding, we'll never know what it is because apparently the police don't follow up on that detail. But they do question the boyfriend who supposedly broke up with Jenna the night before she went missing. According to an interview with Leon released in December, 2017, he claims that the boyfriend told police Jenna suffered from substance use disorder and was performing sex work, but he didn't provide more details than that. But again, this is all third hand and Jenna's friends don't corroborate any of these claims. Soon, the police learn that sometime around 1.30 or 2 a.m. on August 19th, the morning of Jenna's disappearance, one of Jenna's friends received a text from her. In the message, Jenna tells the friend that she's about to go lay down. The text strikes the friend as out of the ordinary. According to them, the way the message is worded just doesn't fit how Jenna usually talks. But police don't seem to consider the possibility that someone else sent that text. They see it as proof that as of very early on August 19th, Jenna was alive and in contact with others, but the trail only gets muddier from here. At some point, officers learn that several hours after that text, around 7.30 in the morning, Jenna's cell phone pinged off a tower in Fairburn, Georgia, a town about 20 miles away from her apartment. And around the same time as the ping, a traffic camera photographed Jenna's car in an entirely different part of Atlanta. 
there's no way the car and the phone could have been in the same place. The question is, was Jenna with her cell phone, her vehicle, or neither? To learn more, the police take to social media with either a photo or description of Jenna's car. I'm not sure which. A woman sees one of these posts. Then while driving through Northwest Atlanta, she sees a similar vehicle parked on the side of the road and calls in the tip. Police check out the scene and sure enough, it's Jenna's car. It clearly hasn't been driven in a while. It's covered in leaves and other debris. And it looks like someone went through all the compartments and dumped their contents all over the place. The driver's seat is also pushed way back like someone tall had been driving last. Clearly not Jenna, who's only four foot 11. But all the items that were missing from her parents' house, her purse, suitcases, and clothes are inside the vehicle. All that's missing is that tapestry and Jenna herself. I don't have any information about whether or not police searched the vehicle for fingerprints or DNA, but I have to assume that if they did, they didn't find anything useful because after the discovery of Jenna's car, the investigation seems to slow down, which leaves Leon and Roseanne looking for ways to keep the pressure on the police. They want the detectives to list Jenna in the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, or NamUs. This is a massive database full of missing persons reports, DNA information, and data on unidentified bodies. If police in another jurisdiction find Jenna's remains or anything that matches her description, NamUs can do the cross-referencing work to help identify her. But it obviously only works if she's listed in the system. And for reasons that aren't totally clear, police don't take the appropriate steps to make that happen. Her family has to publicly call them out on social media and pressure them into listing Jenna. When law enforcement does finally enter Jenna's information, according to Leon, their entry gets basic details about Jenna's case wrong. And unfortunately, even after it's corrected, it doesn't drum up any new leads. Years pass and her family members slowly lose hope that Jenna will come home. On August 29th, 2021, four years after her disappearance, they hold a memorial service for her. They're convinced that if Jenna's out there somewhere, she's no longer alive. According to Leon, he's been worried that Jenna might be dead ever since her car was found. She wouldn't have left her personal belongings behind if she had any choice in the matter. But dead or alive, they still want to solve Jenna's case. At some point, Jenna's parents offer a reward for information on Jenna's disappearance, and it keeps growing until it's worth $50,000. As they wait for tips, they start conducting their own research. The stolen tapestry seems like a natural starting point. Whoever took it likely had something to do with Jenna's disappearance, and they could be trying to sell it. Her parents search for tapestries online, only to find plenty of replicas. Turns out their family heirloom was relatively inexpensive, but the thief likely wouldn't have known that. Maybe whoever took it just thought it looked valuable, or maybe it was some kind of misdirection. Either way, this search doesn't lead to anything. So Leon and Roseanne look elsewhere. They share a family phone plan with Jenna, so they look through her contacts, past calls, and text messages. 
They call every number Jenna saved, looking for answers. They even sign into Jenna's Google account and other online profiles. They find a lot of personal information, like who Jenna's been talking to, where she's been, and what she's been up to. Remember how I said Jenna went out the night before she disappeared? Well, it turns out that after she got back home to her parents' house, someone sent her a series of Google messages trying to get her to go back to her apartment. The problem is, the chat logs don't list the person's name. And it's not clear why they wanted Jenna to return. According to the family, when Leon and Roseanne try to share this with investigators, the police don't want to see it. Leon claims the police have legal concerns about how the family access the information. Should Jenna turn up, they're worried she might sue her family for invading her privacy. Now, this comes as a complete shock to her parents, especially Leon who works as a lawyer. Not only does he have a firm grasp of the law, he knows of other families who have used phone data to help find their missing loved one. He doesn't understand why law enforcement can't help them do the same for Jenna. This comes up again when her parents find a history of unexplicable payments Jenna made through Western Union. Now, I don't know exactly how much money was sent, but the transactions apparently happened regularly for at least two years and stopped shortly before her disappearance. For some reason, it seems Jenna's parents and the police haven't been able to determine who the recipient of this money was, which is frustrating for Jenna's loved ones. Leon accuses the police department of ignoring relevant information that's right in front of them. The DeKalb County Police Department, who handled the investigation at the beginning, noted that the department doesn't comment publicly on active investigations. But then, Officials uncover a lead no one expected. At some point after Jenna Van Gelderen goes missing, the police share a major revelation with her parents. Jenna owned a second cell phone, one her parents didn't know about. I don't know how the police find out about it, possibly from questioning Jenna's roommate or boyfriend but when they do learn that a second phone exists, they can't access any information from it. They don't actually know where it is, so the contents of the second phone are still unknown. It's one more inexplicable clue added to a growing list. This is alongside the Western Union payments, the missing tapestry, the strangely worded 2AM text, and more. But here's what we can infer based on what we do know. It's possible Jenna left her parents' house with at least one other person on the night of August 18th. That would explain how her car and phone were in two different places at the same time, and how a tapestry that large could have been taken down and stolen. Officials didn't find any sign of a struggle at her parents' house, but it's still not clear if Jenna knew this other person or persons. She could have been abducted or always planned to leave with them. There are so many details that could be important or could be red herrings, like the mysterious payments or the lack of bed or mattress at Jenna's apartment or the theft from her workplace earlier that year. Why did she take some personal belongings with her but not others? We just don't know how it all fits together. 
But as I said at the beginning of this episode, there are divergent theories about what could have happened to Jenna. I'll start by covering her parents' point of view. Her parents see their daughter's autism diagnosis as a major factor in this case. They claim Jenna struggled to make friends and was sometimes too eager to get to know others. That she had difficulty differentiating between people who genuinely liked her and those who wanted to manipulate or hurt her. Leon and Roseanne fear that Jenna fell in with the wrong crowd before her disappearance. They're the ones that tricked her into or forced her to steal from her workplace. They think it's possible she was pulled into other kinds of illegal activity without even realizing how she was being used. In their eyes, the Western Union payments are proof someone was extorting her. Leon and Roseanne don't believe Jenna ran away. They cite how committed she was to her daily routine. She was a planner and organizer who stuck to her regimen and kept the rest of the family on track too. According to Leon and Roseanne, the idea of Jenna just walking out one day, especially without treasured objects like her makeup and charger, is more than uncharacteristic. It's almost unthinkable. It's one of the reasons they're so frustrated with the police. To Leon, it seems like officials aren't treating Jenna's case with the urgency it deserves. He believes they're failing to account for how Jenna's autism could complicate their investigation. Experts with Sacramento Autism Services say law enforcement officials are often undertrained when it comes to neurodivergent missing person cases. They don't always understand how they behave differently, which is further complicated by the fact that not everyone experiences autism the same way. I don't know the full details on how Jenna's symptoms present, so I'm not gonna make assumptions about how her diagnosis impacted her life or this case. But I know her parents are convinced she was a victim, in large part because of her symptoms, but the police don't seem to agree. In fact, based on their early statements, it appears they don't suspect foul play at all. That leaves open the possibility that Jenna had some kind of accident while out running errands but it's hard to reconcile that with the missing tapestry or her phone and car being in two locations at the same time. So let's explore another scenario that Jenna took off on her own. Before her disappearance, Leon and Roseanne were heavily involved in Jenna's life. They tried to keep tabs on Jenna and her friends as much as they could, which proved to be a challenge. In an interview, Leon described his daughter's social life as, quote, a total mystery most of the time. Before Jenna disappeared, her parents used their shared cell phone plan to track the contacts on Jenna's phone as well as her usage. At one point, Leon was worried about his daughter's activities and confronted her about her new friendships. And it didn't go well. Jenna got upset after hearing about all the oversight and her relationship with her parents soured. She moved out of their house and into that apartment with the male roommate. And when she left, she refused to disclose her new address. She didn't even want her parents knowing where she lived. Around this time is when Jenna bought her second cell phone, the one her parents couldn't track. Which is all to say, it sounds like Jenna took some pretty extreme steps to distance herself from her parents, hiding major parts of her life. It's one of the reasons her case is so hard to piece together today. Is that by design? We just don't know. 
According to the Atlanta Police Department's policy manual, when an officer locates a missing person who doesn't appear to be in danger, the detectives are supposed to ask if they want their loved ones notified. Presumably, if they say no, the investigators won't share the location of the missing person, but they would have notified the family if the person was found, and they'd still close the missing person's case. And that hasn't happened with Jenna. As of this recording, Jenna's case is still open, which leaves open the possibility that both of these scenarios are true. Jenna willingly left with someone who didn't have her best interests at heart. I've learned a lot about the warning signs of human trafficking while making this show, about how traffickers will spend weeks or months earning their victims' trust, grooming them, sometimes as friends, sometimes as lovers. So there aren't always signs of a forcible abduction, how they'll try to drive a wedge between their intended target and the victim's support system. So after the victim disappears, it looks like maybe they wanted to run away and how sometimes traffickers pressure their intended targets into committing crimes to blackmail them later. Atlanta has some of the highest rates of human trafficking in the United States. To be totally clear, neither the police nor Jenna's family have publicly put forward a theory about human trafficking. Some of the details just raised red flags for me. So I thought it was worth mentioning, if only to raise awareness about the fact that these things happen closer to home than we might realize. This could be a tragic story about a young woman who was manipulated, then kidnapped or murdered, or someone who longed for freedom and independence and achieved it, or there could be something entirely else at play. I'll return to my metaphor about the book with the missing pages. It's impossible to know what's relevant until we can read the whole story. And with Jenna's case in particular, even those who were a part of her story before she went missing can't seem to agree on which parts were true. And it comes down to a question that's impossible to answer for Jenna, let alone anyone we know and love, even those who are still with us. What was going on in her inner world? Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you have any information about the disappearance of Jenna Van Gelderen, please contact Crime Stoppers at 404-577-8477 or the Georgia Bureau of Investigation's tip line at 1-800-579-8477. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from ParCast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Spencer Howard. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Angela Jorgensen, edited by Karis Allen and Connor Sampson. 
fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Brian Petrus, produced by Aaron Larson, with sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.